Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Bob Akashrafi. Today is June 30, 2020, and I'm speaking with Kavita Sivaramakrishnan, who works on the history and politics of public health in South Asia and the Global South. Thank you for joining us, Kavita. Thank you, Babak. It's a huge pleasure to join you today and to take part in what I think is a very crucial set of conversations. Kavita, how can the history of India's past experience with epidemics help us understand the current crisis? What is the use of that history today? The way I understand it, uh, Babak, I think a lot of my historian colleagues have now constantly evoked colonial history, colonial pandemics, and shown really recently that there's been a huge interest, a kind of uptick of interest in the Indian press and in the Indian public, both in fora such as The Wire, The Scroll Magazine, a range of other places where people have begun to talk and explore and in some ways think and evoke memories again of past pandemics. I would say that this history has been important not simply because we've really discovered the importance of history and historians, and we like to flatter ourselves by saying that. But my argument really is that these explorations, especially from members of the public over various talk shows, which I've been on or interviews, I feel they've really served now and they're serving a very living and present day political end. They really serve as a kind of proxy, a means by which people can recollect the past Compare, for instance, the colonial pandemic, which evokes a critique of the government by nationalist Indian leaders, which evokes issues of coercion, issues where profit and profit productivity have been concerns that have overtaken issues of health equity. All of these issues that are evoked from the colonial times and from, for instance, the third plague pandemic in 18, from 1896 to the 1930s, all of these have really, I think, served as a proxy for a very contemporary critique. I think uh, memorializing or in some ways thinking of a past that is removed or remote or detached has really served to shine light on a deficient present, a present that has very charged meanings. And the dilemma for all of us, and I think especially in India, with the kind of government there is just now, with the kinds of pressures really to conform in some ways with whatever is the national mandate of being part of a movement to, to be able to consolidate India and in a warlike setting to fight with COVID. Considering all of that, I think history has become a way really to escape and resist, but resist by a critique that is indirect and more remote. And this has really led, I think, to a range of people using history to use, for instance, explorations of the Epidemic Diseases Act of 1897, to think about the ways it was invoked in the past, to look to the present, to really understand how police inspections that happened in the colonial times have a very, very immediate kind of implication. And I think this is not simply colonial epidemic. I think if we look more immediately, if we look kind of beyond the plague, people are also interested in what's happened through recent experiences. How has India really coped with looking at uh, cholera epidemics in the 1950s and 60s? Is there a life after a pandemic? So I've often been asked in some of these interviews, what happened when the plague ended? 
So I often turn to say, well, it hasn't really ended. Most of these diseases go from being epidemic to endemic. So I think it's been very interesting to speak about this, especially to some of the shows I've been on have really helped me to understand, especially when you speak with people on Hindi shows, you realize that there, there are students and listeners in very small towns and cities across India who write to you. And you realize that they really get it. They understand that when they are talking of issues of public trust, the fact that colonial authorities did not trust and communicate properly, that these are the very same issues that exist in a contemporary setting with COVID-19. They, they bring out issues that are historical, but they know very well that history is just a mask or a way for them in public discourse to be able to discuss the current politics, which they cannot always articulate, especially considering the muzzling of the media and so many fora in terms of critique, to be able to talk about it openly. I think historians and history serves as a very, very important device to remember and not simply memorialize the past, I think, but to very much live it and serve as a proxy to critique the, the present. India is a very diverse country with complex politics. How have the regional politics and communal relations affected the response to the epidemic and perceptions of the epidemic? It's a great question because I think it's also a troubling one. We've had, as you know, a long social and communal history of tensions and politics across India in the post-colonial period, but also very immediately in terms of riots, so in the name of religion and communalism, as well as caste. And I think what COVID-19 has really done is in some ways taken apart and shown us that the middle classes in some ways have really, in the name of social distancing, and especially since the lockdown started in India on 25th of March 2020, they have really separated and in some ways stayed away from those who are supposed to do the essential services, much like what we see in the U.S. But in India, what also happens is that those who are doing these so-called menial jobs, those who are scavenging or cleaning drains or other things, also happen to be caste-based jobs, right? They're the jobs that are done mostly by Dalit communities, by those who are marginalized, often by Adivasi communities. And these are the same people that the middle classes have both used. They've extracted labor in terms of being able to socially distance themselves and quarantine themselves. But at the same time, what it has also meant is that slums like Dharavi or settlements that are seen as places which could potentially be a kind of bombs representing COVID-19 in all its virality, they both use the labor of these waste pickers, those who are scavenging and who provide the essential services, and shown deeply the caste as well as class divides that have come up at the time of COVID. So the, the atrocities, the deeply de dehumanizing conditions under which people from the so-called lower castes stay in, whose labor has been really you know, crucial in India's urbanization, in India's transition to a stage of late capitalism. All of that really has come out at the time of COVID, apart from the fact that the media has suddenly woken up to what seems to be the stark reality, which has always existed, of course. As historians, we know that urbanization in India has been fundamentally unequal. And what's happened now, of course, is that during every pandemic or epidemic or any kind of human disaster, you have almost 2 million homeless people in India. You have a range of migrant labor who are based in big cities. And we've seen the exodus along roads and highways of these populations and who died, had fatal accidents, and starved as they walked and cycled across on these roads and highways. 
it's been the most dismal and the most depressing and kind of heart-wrenching spectacle to watch at the time of covid and it's almost as if the middle classes and the elite who had who thought that they had so-called covid-19 preparedness plans all of those plans or these lockdown plans that have existed on paper clearly were a lockdown plan for only those citizens who have been on paper been counted right who have houses and homes who are tax paying citizens but there's a range of others who all contribute to the economy who been at the core of everything india is today and they were not counted and that's really to me the core problem in terms of the question you raised which is in this complex politics in india and in our response to it uh, both caste and class and marginalization has really been seen and of course there's also been a notions of othering and difference which have been associated with trying to identify muslim communities associated the kind of media frenzy that broke out sometime in early march when there was an islamic missionary movement the tablighi jamaat they had a meeting in delhi near a religious shrine and subsequently those who attended that meeting uh, near this muslim shrine they were accused really of having become literally like communities of super spreading communities who were who been spreading the virus around and a range of fake news came up around it basically that the spread of coronavirus was really through this meeting it's really awful to have watched that because you had a large scale kind of islamophobia that comes up you have hashtag corona jihad hashtag bio jihad with more that have appeared more than 300,000 times that people have access and uh, as a result of it been identified is that the tablighi jamaat association has been portrayed as indian muslims have been associated as being the sole culprit of disseminating of being super spreaders of of covid so this has really been you know in both in terms of caste both in terms of marginalization it really shows if this is the real india it shows an india that all the deepest inequities the kind of divisiveness that existed inside society at this point of time i wouldn't like to make this a story of all of these events without showing how a range of journalists who worked in some places have been so courageous bring this bringing this out Uh, the sorts of voices from civil society that have also spoken up and that's been very difficult i think for many people to speak up and resist but i think there's been both one has seen cases of both resistance but overwhelmingly one has seen a nation that uh, in many ways has parochially divided itself even far far more deeply as a result of covid how have authorities in india addressed the fears associated with covid or communicated the risks associated with covid as infection rates have risen across the country the communication babak uh, has happened at several levels on the one hand i'm more familiar with the communication that's been more visible through the media often at the level of cities we've often had chief ministers in delhi in mumbai in chennai in various other places holding press conferences like we've had in new york for instance and in the same way we've had chief ministers speaking and communicating to the public we've had of course prime minister narendra modi doing more than three or four or i think on very regular occasions telling people how to behave who uh, kind of uh, asking them to praise covid warriors to ring plates and light lamps and prescribe a range of ceremonies that could be done by the public to be able to kind of say that fighting covid is a public effort so there's been a lot of symbolism there's been also communication in terms of trying to tell people what the state is doing but i think a lot of it 
hasn't been sufficient. Basically, a lot of chief ministers have, especially in Delhi, for instance, there's been a lot of conflict between several levels of politics in India, between the sorts of messages that are being given out at a national level, chief ministers denying that they've got the kind of aid that they're supposed to have got, and the difference really between policies that are announced, for instance, grain distribution of food, for instance, that's been announced, or allowances, cash transfers that have been made to people who are below poverty line. A lot of it, people have realized, has been in terms of communication. People have tended to see it as a kind of rhetoric, that it's all being said, but the delivery often has been good only in some places, and in a majority of places, it hasn't always worked. And interestingly enough, the pre-COVID story is relevant because what you realize is that wherever service delivery, both health service delivery as well as the delivery of welfare programs has been good, states with a good record of that, like Tamil Nadu, Kerala and other states, have delivered on some of these announcements and communications much more effectively. But on the other hand, I think the issue really has been that communication has mostly stressed that the state comes to you at the level of an emergency. But what you need to do is have a certain kind of laissez-faire or self-reliance and uh, to relocate uh, Prime Minister Modi's um, vocabulary, the sense of Atmanirbharta, Atmanirbharta as in a kind of self-reliance, which has meant economic, material, self-sufficiency for the nation. But in some ways, it has also meant that individuals and families have to dig deep to offer out-of-pocket expenses. And people have been praised as COVID warriors who should be fearless of stigma. Families have been told that they should, they could kind of put their lives at risk and do everything really in terms of making decisions for individual family members and communities. It has really meant, it's shown us that it's really an endorsement, it's a deepening of what we've already seen with neoliberalism in India. The fact that the state or the public sector steps in at the time of an emergency And a lot of the rest really relies on the family and individual to be able to raise the resources in the absence of wider social safety nets. And the pandemic really has only reinforced the lack of those social nets and the fact that so many families who were actually moving with some degree of mobility in urban areas towards having a certain kind of security in employment and resources have also fallen back to the edge of precarity. And that is really something that's been very hard to watch, to see this happen, because you realize that even people who felt that they were protected in some ways have found that they have been really on the brink. The Indian government has designated different COVID-19 zones, implemented lockdowns in those zones, and is preparing to reopen some zones. Can you describe these efforts to contain the epidemic for us? Sure. The Indian government designated at a national level different kinds of containment zones that were announced. This was sometime in late March when they started and announced a lockdown over 22 states and union territories in India and across 80 cities. So this was a massive enterprise. This lockdown from March was extended first to 3rd of May and then 7th of May. And in terms of the zonal classification across the nation, what we've had is mostly, I think, three zones. One is the green zone where there are no confirmed cases of COVID for over about 21 days. And then the orange zone, which has fewer cases. And then those who live within the red zone are populations who see a doubling rate of COVID with a huge number of active cases. And uh, what's happened in terms of enforcing these COVID zones, in terms of enforcing social distancing, as well as this kind of quarantine, 
is really the invoking of the second provision of the Epidemic Diseases Act, which is the Colonial 1897 Epidemic Diseases Act, which was amended a few years ago, but also to make sure really that the police and the municipal and local administration can take legal action against you if you don't conform to some of the rules and regulations that are set that ask you to comply with these curfew, with the containment and a lot of the strictures that have come together. And also the government has also, along with the containment zones, introduced an app called the Arogisetu, which is an app on a smartphone, which is meant for contact tracing for COVID containment. It's an open source. And often if you're already registered as, as an individual who is a patient who has COVID, then in cities like Delhi, you will often get a couple of phone calls during a day to check on you, to be able to have information whether you have fever or not, what's your oxygen levels. A range of people in my own family who've been suffering from COVID have had this kind of access. But again, this is what happens if you're part of a middle class and based in an urban area. As far as the rural countryside is known, a lot of these containment zones and the way people have been restricted is the is really the, the reporting and the narrative that we hear from an urban middle class. I think in rural areas where in any case, health services have been deeply underserved, in places like Tamil Nadu, big cities like Chennai have actually pulled a cadre of nurses from rural areas to serve the city. And those are already underserved areas. The, the really big question is what is happening in terms of reporting of COVID, in terms of contact tracing of COVID cases beyond the urban landscape in rural areas. And I think that is still a, a very, very nebulous picture. The other reflection I had about the containment zones is what um, is also the definition of what we call a containment zone. So, um, and that's really interesting, I think, for us as social scientists, because you realize that as you keep changing the name and definition of a category, you can also make it look very serious, so you can kind of make it disappear. So there's a kind of cooking of data that's happening also. In Chennai, there were about 369 containment zones that were identified. They shifted from 369 to 78, and then to 64 in one day, very recently on June 21st. And the definition changed that only if a street has five primary COVID-19 cases or 20 positive contacts, would it be sealed or come under containment? So recently, actually, micro-level containment has really become key because you need micro-level strategies to be able to check door-to-door -door fever, to set up ward-level fever camps, to identify who's vulnerable or who is elderly. So really, the Greater Chennai Corporation has been involved in this. It's called school teachers to monitor this progress. And the teachers, in turn, serve really, and this is fascinating, serve as the vehicles to be able to submit complaints to the police regarding the violation of, of, of quarantine protocols. So it's interesting how each city at the micro level so has a very, very different micro picture of how both these containment zones, their protocols, their revised protocols, and the line or the assembly of people or the agents who are used to be able to identify patients, to report them, or to discipline them, how widely they vary from place to place in terms of, of these experiences and in terms also of these within these zonal classifications. So all of it looks very simple when you just think of these three national zones. But what is fascinating is the complexity of the picture that if you scale down from the national to the local, how quickly it changes. And in places where it's worked well, it's clearly worked also because there's already been a mechanism of governance that's been working well. Uh, where, where you've had a municipality or local community 
and a public that's been working together. And clearly where you don't, where these links are broken, then where, where would you go to be able to set them right at the time of a crisis? You know, that's absolutely the core of how we understand uh, what happens during a pandemic. We cannot reinvent social networks and ties or the making of good and effective forms of governance. Suddenly, we can't put them together at the time of a pandemic. And I think that's what people forget because pandemics simply show you what has already existed and it just tests all those mechanisms and puts pressure on them. That's a very interesting way to put it, and it reflects the conversations we've been having with scholars talking about the situation around the world, actually. Which brings me to the next question. We've been talking about the situation internal to India, but how are India's international relations and its past and present connections to international public health institutions, such as the World Health Organization, how have these relations been affecting India's response to the epidemic? I think it's an interesting kind of connection because I think we go back now to the scale of thinking how the Indian national government at the national level or the government of India, what its relationship has been. And I think if we look historically, unlike America's kind of fraught history of not joining the WHO initially, pulling in and out or giving it funds or not during the Cold War and trying to kind of press it, you know, during certain disease campaigns, India has not had that kind of a fraught history with, for instance, the World Health Organization. It's generally worked with international organizations and collaborated with them. Uh, one of my favorite historical figures whom I'm working on, uh, Rajkumari Amrit Kaur, who was a longtime nationalist leader who was very close to Gandhi. She actually was India's first health minister. She was a member of its constituent assembly, but she also served as uh, president of the World Health Assembly in 1950. So we've always had a cadre of Indian politicians and bureaucrats who work with the WHO, who've also worked closely, not just only with the WHO in Geneva, but also, I think, with the regional office, the WHO Southeast Asia Regional Office that's based in Delhi. So we've generally worked closely, even before COVID, on various disease programs with the WHO closely. And what's happened during COVID, I think, is there's been no overt criticism of the WHO. And I think the WHO has turned also to praise India in the beginning as having, you know, had a robust and uh, a very rigorous kind of lockdown restrictions. It praised it initially in March. But we all know, uh, those of us who work in global health history are aware that WHO has been pressed, very, very pressed in terms of playing an effective role to be seen as having been even-handed in its relationship with China, in the ways in which it's been looked at in the world today. And that, of course, is a longer history over the last couple of decades, that when the WHO has been crowded out by bigger players, including the Gates Foundation and other global health initiatives. But I think to answer your question specifically towards COVID, India has worked before COVID quite closely with the World Health Organization in terms of pandemic preparedness plans. In 1999, the first kind of really substantial pandemic preparedness plan that the WHO had offered in response to influenza. And at that point, it articulated uh, a vision that um, influenza plans really were, and the management of risks for in influenza plans really rested on national authority. That the role of the WHO at the time of a pandemic was really to be able to articulate risks, to give certain early warning signals, and national pandemic plans really needed to come together. 
And after 1999, as neoliberalism deepens and as the state pulls out, as various states, including the WHO's own role, as, as it diminishes and as the public sector pulls out, the WHO's preparedness plans in 2005-2009 also incorporate national advice in terms of how states should have a whole-of-society approach. That it's not only the health sector, but that you need to involve individuals, families, and communities when you make your kind of pandemic checklist. And all the while, the WHO is telling countries that, you know, if you have enough resources, you have a pandemic checklist that works. But most of the time, pandemics are unpredictable. So in response to this, in 2009, India actually devised a pandemic plan. The government of India devised it. It had uh, in that pandemic plan, in, in response to the WHO for influenza, it had, I think, pharmaceutical, non-pharmaceutical elements. It also talked about risk communication, about how would the government at the time of a pandemic communicate risk. But all of this was really at the level of a vision of pharmaceuticals, distribution of medicines, and just public health messaging that was seemingly very vaguely articulated. There was a flaw in that plan. You know, when you think about how the WHO envisions it and how these national plans are made, even at that time, in spite of the relationship with the WHO, the Indian plan had no no details really about vulnerable populations. We don't hear about the urban poor, indigenous populations, Muslims, the dis- and these are all, and women, these are the groups that would have uh, elderly populations whom I work on. These would have, of course, borne the uh, disproportionate bur- burden of both morbidity and mortality. So to come to answer your question, India has had a good relationship with international health organizations like the WHO. It's worked quite, I think, in in alignment with the sorts of planning that the WHO has advised before a pandemic. It's not been so far deeply critical of the role of the WHO. But I think to reflect on on what's happened in global health, I think what is clear with globalization is on the other, on the one hand, we all rush to feel that the globe was at the stage of both uh, trade ties, both in terms of urbanization and also especially in terms of capitalism. There was a rush amongst countries and investors to think that the true globalization processes was really coming together. And I think what the pandemic has shown the Indian middle classes is that in some ways, the links, the global links kind of come come away and come apart and fall apart very, very quickly. And those are the weakest links. So India, in some ways, is figured out, like many other countries are, have, that there is not this wider solidarity when each economy and society is left to cope with the pandemic on their own. It made a heroic effort, I think, in offering malaria drugs, which President Trump thought were effective for, for COVID. Prime Minister Modi made this grand, grand gesture. But on the other hand, I think what it's left is, is that international health organizations uh, or partners, even like the Gates Foundation, that were quite important in combating HIV AIDS, um, I think it really resulted in them not playing such a substantial role. That is this evoking of the Médecins Sans Frontières to be able to have them involved in, in some projects and to be able to come to Mumbai, for instance. But broadly, I think the international and the global at the time, this has become very much a national emergency. But from afar, you see this pandemic rolling out in other countries. But very much what what is happening is that you see the testing of society at a national and local level. Thank you very much, Kavita, for talking with us and sharing your perspectives on the situation in India. You're welcome, Babak, and it's been a real pleasure for me. Historians do have a role, and I'm very grateful for you to have spoken to me. 
historians have a role, not simply, I think, at the time of a pandemic to feel that the historian's craft and the research that we've done is suddenly rediscovered. But I think you discover that history is evoked, used, applied, and reclaimed in very present day and contemporary terms. And it gives you a great sense of pleasure to feel that there is the political and social embedded in history, and people are able to make vigorous use of the research we've done and the scholarship we've done, because history, history of medicine and disease, is often seen as offering a view of the past and not always being replicable. But I'm very happy for the fact that it's not replicable in, in exactly the same way. People say that however many pandemics you see, you see one pandemic at a time, that it can't be replicated. So I'm happy with that. I actually do feel that people are using history, histories of disease and health in very effective ways today. And that's particularly been the experience I've had interacting with the public, with people who've been in touch with me during these few months. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine, and I'm Larry Kessler, a program coordinator at the Consortium. You can find more resources for exploring this topic, other podcasts, video lectures, archival spotlights, as well as opportunities to connect with our community of scholars at chstm.org. This podcast is made possible with the generous support of the Pew Charitable Trusts, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and the Rita Allen Foundation. Thank you for listening.